Welcome, welcome, come on in. This is the 13th episode of Post Poet Pop. We're recording live from downtown Louisville. And we've got a little love letter for our fair city today by way of a feature interview with the poet Mackenzie Berry. As we focus on Mackenzie's 2022 book, Slack Tongue City, put out by Sundress Publications. Mackenzie's book can be taken both as a compendium of Louisville details while also being a full-on dedication to what it means to be a person who grew up here and then move away and represent this wonderful place we call home. In Mackenzie's own words, loyalty gets you killed, but I heard it gets you into heaven first, which I think aptly epitomizes the position the speaker of Slack Tongue City's poems occupies. And today, you'll hear Mackenzie read five poems from her book, and we will discuss some Louisville things as we go. So let's get into it. Is 
Mom said Louisville's not the South because it dresses grits fancy. Mom, from red clay pasture truck porch swing Georgia, said it's only the South if they had grits before they started dressing grits fancy. I, from hot brown big red Riverside Louisville, said Louisville's the South because you have to trip your tongue up to say it right. Mom, from the next house couldn't hear you if you screamed, Georgia, said you can see Indiana from downtown, so what's the Midwest? I, from tell me you didn't lick your fingers after you ate in my city, Louisville, said Louisville's the South because the Ohio flows Mississippi. Mom, from the tea turns your blood molasses and twists your lips sour, Georgia, said she planted the only magnolia tree in the city, so it's the North. I, from bourbon isn't bourbon unless it's from Kentucky, Louisville, said Louisville's the South because the city's spread out slow and the corner store clerks call everybody honey. Mom said you can skip a rock to Indiana, so it's not the South. I said I'm not good at skipping rocks, so it's the South. Mom from cast iron fried green okra, Georgia said the overpriced derby hats and mint juleps and plaid striped drunks are just a good show. I, from some orphan city of no swimmers, said Louisville's the South because it says so. I thought yeah. this poem, it, it's able to highlight a certain set of sentiments, but also as a dialogue. And it also feels kind of like an argument, but, you know, not a bad one. And it, But it ends in a rather imperative way. And, and we're acknowledging that identity is what the thing says it is. But also this is a city, so the city's voice is its people. And then I, I think about the epigraph to your book. Uh, coming from Jim James and you know that epigraph acknowledges how all outsiders to Louisville get it wrong it I think mm -hmm. being the sense of identity and in your poem there are all these superlatives like the only magnolia tree no swimmers right things are conditionally held as they are only if and so my question is why should it matter that so-called outsiders get it wrong and why should it matter that Louisville is seen as either northern or a southern place? It's really, one, I mean, I, I always read it whenever I do a reading from Saxon City in the, like I, you know, preface with the story that, um, you know, I, I've always, I, growing up in Louisville, always regarded Louisville as the South, well, I'm from the South, you know, that's what I consider. Uh, but someone asked my mom, you know, you're from Georgia, and you know, you've been in Louisville decades now, do you think Louisville's South? And she was very matter of fact, without thinking, just said, no, it's not. And <laughs> and I said, why? And she said, well, because Louisville didn't start having grits until restaurants started having grits, until they started dressing grits up. So it, it was just so funny to me that that was her singular criteria for what's the South and what's not, <laughs> was grits, like on the basis of grits. Um, you know, but on the other hand, okay, fitting, like I'll, I'll accept that. <laughs> um, I thought that was so funny because we, we all have our criteria uh, geographically, politically, culturally, socially. Um, for her, it was grits. Um, and it was really just to illuminate that, you know, everyone who asked me have a, a different criteria. Um, but, uh, you know, I I assert, you know, Louisville as a South, you know, for reasons I say in the poem, um, but also it feels like if, you know, if we don't assert 
you know what it uh, what it belongs to, um, then it's it's left for other people to tell us, you know, what it is and what it isn't. In so many terms of not only identity politics, but like in a lyrical sense, like if Louisville were to write a poem about itself, you know, that's what we need. But that's not what a city can do. And we have these like regional placements when when we tell stories about ourselves and our ancestors um but i like here that you you ended with like look it's it's what it says it is and i feel like it's also you know and i think it's for people from Louisville specifically where there's just a widespread acceptance for a dislike of indiana you know of right. framing ourselves in opposition to indiana and it's also like okay indiana's midwest so we're not like this river this river you know um, distinguishes that I I heard that through and through growing up, um, you know, all, all the time. I, I suppose some of the uh, you know some of the uh, references like are still still resonate with people in terms of like you know magnolia trees, for example, being associated with the South. Um, you know, sweet tea being like associated with the South and specifically the Deep South. Um, and you know, you know, some people may not catch like. You know the big red, big red is you know core part of Louisville's identity or like the hot brown. Some people don't have accents. Louisville has has so many accents though. I yeah. I think that's that's like such you know the wild thing about it. Um, you know the south and the west end. Um, you know places in the east end. P- people have distinct accents even within Louisville and and I think also speaks to people's you know familial lineage like whether you know some of their families from uh you know from deeper from uh, deeper in the south or you know whether they're you know from somewhere in the midwest and and came down um so I think that's that's also one of the, the beautiful things about Louisville too that it's um it's yeah you'll get some people from rural Kentucky that will to Louisville and have been there for a them all. Um, but there, there's so many accents. Well, little by little and blow by blow It's a little breaking downs in the towns we know I'm choking on this bit of pain
bedroom door I don't know who she's looking for Sweet sacrifice coming for the kid feel that you had to write this book and kind of let Louisville go like the act of writing this book feels a little bit yeah. like the speaker of these poems at least might not be you was was letting Louisville go to take on other horizons and in doing you know when you create an artifact and add it to even a personal archive yeah no I think that I think that's exactly right uh, in terms of, of letting Louisville go and I feel that Flight had to be my first book for that reason, um, that it's all, it's a simultaneous letting, giving myself permission uh, to let go, but also asserting in Saxon City that it's, that Louisville's always with me and always, um, always a centerpiece and that I carry with me, with me everywhere. Uh, but I think, yeah, I think that definitely comes through, especially in, in the poem. Every summer a garden hose made a pool, the simultaneous, uh, wanting to have have regard for Louisville because the national imagination of Louisville and Kentucky is not a positive one, uh, but also, you know, giving myself permission that because I regard Louisville and I want to um, stand on it and, you know, honor it and, uh, you know, celebrate it, that doesn't mean that I that I'm not allowed to do other things too. There is no bridge from the thief to me. My skin Title board where the river 
summer a garden hose made a pool and led me to believe maybe metaphors tell the truth when the heat rising off the sidewalk made the trash go rancid i wrote a new praise for the man leaning off the garbage truck at the birth of morning his orange vest beaming telling me he could shoot a basketball good as kentucky as i dribbled and fumbled down the alley Once my mom told me of Georgia, I set out in search of a honeysuckle bush to prove I could be gentle and deft enough to pull the one drop from the flower, just like she did the day she pushed tire swings and made peanut butter cookies. I learned to roller skate on a gym floor and thought maybe I could crash through a wall and find a whole other city waiting to tag in once this one was done and it. We are seven hours from a coast in any direction, but somehow I still hear the sea. Each time I land somewhere, I am reminded there are children dreaming out of that place, just how I did mine. Everybody has an angel And everybody 
Everybody wants tomorrow right now So say that happiness will never find you Until you find yourself So say that happiness is all around you It ain't how you mention your well No I say it's free to be yourself We all fall short sometimes It costs nothing It costs nothing to help sometimes Cause everybody needs an angel And everybody needs a smile And everybody has an angel And everybody wants tomorrow right now But everybody Everybody needs an angel indeed. That is the one and only Roots crew featuring Raheem Devon with Tomorrow. That is from their rather prescient album, And Then You Shoot Your Cousin. We began today's set with My Morning Jackets Out of My System. And that was followed by the poet Mackenzie Berry reading the poem, Mom Said Louisville's Not the South Because It Dresses Grits Fancy. We are focusing on Mackenzie's work today, especially the work from the book Slack Tongue City, came out on Sundress Publications in 2022. Mackenzie's first poem was then followed by Amos Lee, our friend from Philadelphia, who wrote a song called Louisville. And then we heard from Mackenzie and I discussing leaving Louisville and writing the book Slack Tongue City. That was followed by local musician Lacey Guthrie with The King of Holding On to Things. And then Mackenzie's poem, Every Summer a Garden Hose Made a Pool. People at risk of hurting themselves or others often show warning signs before an act of violence takes place. You can learn how to spot the signs and safely do something about it by checking out the Know the Signs program that effectively teaches people how to prevent school violence, mass shootings, and other harmful acts. You can find training and resource materials that are provided at no cost at sandyhookpromise.org. That's S-A-N-D-Y-H-O-O-K-P-R-O-M-I-S-E, sandyhookpromise.org. And again, today's focus for Post Poet Pop is Mackenzie Berry, and we're going to get back into it. You'll hear Mackenzie read the poem, I Refuse to Believe These Are the Best Years of My Life. Thank you all for tuning in. You are on Art FM, WXOXLP, 97.1, Louisville FM.
I refuse to believe these are the best years of my life. I would like to think I would be the old woman with a wheelbarrow full of lavender and no small talk left in me. I would like to think I will have a front porch or at least a stoop to splay myself public and sitting by my own. Maybe no smoke or brown liquor, but enough left to pour to keep them coming by. I would like to think that when I smile without my teeth, there will be no bones left to split in two. And I will spend my last days pointing, saying, look, back across that bend, I took the world across my knee. Look, my daughter, at all the crow's feet that have gathered right very here to sing her name. For the ones who told me to drink my 20 straight because they would be the ripest season of them all. I hear you can't even break the pit until you're 40 and have no reason left to soft your fangs. Yes, I swallow sinew too and all the children know me well. Here, my love, come sit with me while I map the lightning bugs a path to my open grave. Tell me about the old woman with the wheelbarrow of lavender. You know, what what age is she? Yeah. Where is she? Who is she? What's she out there doing? Yeah, the old woman with the wheelbarrow full of lavender. You know, she's, you know, you can find her, you know, working in her garden or hanging out on her front porch. And she doesn't take anyone's BS and you know, she's uh, she's quiet, but if you, you know, ask her something, she's to the point and direct. Um, and she just wants to, you know, eat her good food, you know, take a walk, using whatever you got lying around to make your garden, you know, not, not going through the trouble to build a garden bed or, um, you know, get some pots, but just using what you got. A wheelbarrow full of lavender. It could be a Kentucky image. But it also could be yeah. Washington, France. Right. You know, like it yeah. is she far away? Yeah. Is she back? Yeah, I mean I think this I think this poem is is one of those that's not um geographically bound. Like I think the ones um especially in this um yeah, in this section um are really um yeah, reaching for some of those those images that that yeah, can reach you beyond, you know, particular geographic location. Uh, which is yeah part of the heart of the of the book too. I mean, the sentiment of the title is is hopeful, but in refusal. It's hopeful in refusal. I reject the notion that you know the best of your life happens when you're quote unquote young. Do you think about you know uh, aging? Do you think a lot about aging? Do you think about? Um, I feel like, and I don't mean that this is this is stereotypical. It doesn't seem like someone your age would be too focused on getting older. I, I do think about about aging, getting older, just only um, in the sense of, I hope my my older and my age self would be proud of me in this moment. Like I hope I'm, I hope I'm not um, living with, with any regrets and that I'm really following my intuition and honoring, you know, what I truly desire. Uh, but maybe also a uh, part of the reason uh, that could be is that, my my mother, um, for the whole time I you know was growing up, um, is a is a chaplain at, at hospice, and so she works you know she worked and works with 
um, you know, people who are who are on their deathbed and doing end-of-life care every day. And so I think um, that was always a presence, you know, in the house too. My mother works with dying people. She says she can easily tell, looking in both eyes, who will spend their last night scratching, frantically pointing at the corners of the room, and who will open the door lightly, tilt their heads and wink just once. She says, near the end, 
Everyone tugs at their collar, casts their clothes, and tries to pull out of their skins, skeleton and itching. Death, like drugs, tends to make an honest family. And so they sit in waiting rooms, saying, I never liked her, but it's nice to see a wicked woman still. Or, remember all the times she fought the man for trying to strike us small? Of course, we're all dying people, but I mean the ones who have the grace and terror of knowing what's nearest. Sometimes, if they have young children, they make the chaplain, my mother, tell the children first how death means the body means nothing anymore, how what looks like their mother will soon grow far colder. Other times, if they have old children, they make the chaplain, my mother, leave so the children can crawl in the bed, place their heads on the collarbone, their feet hanging off the edge. Once a son went into the bathroom stall and downed a bottle of tequila, coming out swaying and asking if it was over yet. No, it's not over yet. Everything polite dissolves when single months are left. Always wondered if dying people cut her off mid-sentence with a head shake if her prayer didn't salve because their time was especially too short for limp letters to God, mostly. Who would be left to know if she did her job badly? She must have made a sacred pact with everything grim, swore to usher every last breath true, if only for her own. She must know when the heart stops, the chest bursts upward like a sky split endless. Throughout this book, there's a plethora of looking back and looking forward. And in that kind of place right. is the speaker in the center of a person who's looking back and looking forward is also, that's what a dying person is existentially forced to do. Now that you've, right. you've talked about your mom. So when you were growing up, she was a chaplain, you said, at hospitals, but also for hospice? For hospice. Yeah, so she, she, yeah, she worked. Um, there was a, a, a floor of beds or a wing, maybe even. Um, at Norton Hospital um, where hospice patients would stay. And so she uh, worked for a long time, had an office, you know, up there. Um, so working for hospice, yes. Did you did you go with her to work ever? Yeah, some, sometimes actually I would, um, sometimes I would take the bus after um, after school in high school just to, to Norton Hospital because it was only, you know, one type bus as opposed to making the transfer to go home. So sometimes I would just take the bus to um, her office and just stay there until I would just go home with her. And I met some of the patients that she had as well. Um, and the, yeah, there would just be some of the that you that you would just say, oh, I think, you know, you would, you would like to meet this person or they would like to meet you. And we would just have a conversation. Um, but it, yeah, it, it struck me, you know, some of the patients I met, um, you know, it, it, talk about it in the poem, but um, yeah, you know, she, she said that she can, she can really tell uh, really who's, who's uh, living with regrets um, in terms of whether they're fearful or not. Because um, especially, you know, as a child, I would think that everyone on their deathbed um, is, is fearful, you know, of what's to come. But some of the patients that that I met were so were so joyful, you know, to the contrary. 
<laughs> and I remember my mom saying um, that actually um, she had a patient who said that the time that they spent in hospice on their deathbed was actually the most joyful time in their life, period, because they had so many people calling them and, you know, telling stories and recounting memories and just, you know, saying what they meant to each other that never would have happened if they weren't on their deathbed and they knew what was coming. But I feel like nuances are what matter. And I think yeah. you get at some of those in this poem, but I can't imagine, you know, being a kid and, and going to the hospital and kind of being exposed to that. I mean, I think it could be good for you, but I, I it's hard to imagine. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think it, it definitely um, just dissolved any preconceived notions I had. Um, also about about older people, because especially, you know, when you're, when you're growing up in school, you're always socialized with people who are your same age, because you're in, you know, you're with people who are in your same grade, and there's actually not a lot of opportunity for um, intergenerational conversation that's not within a power dynamic, right? Like we might talk to our teachers, but there's a power dynamic, or we might talk to our parents, but there's a power dynamic there. Mm -hmm. But in these cases, it wasn't that at all. You know, there's, they don't have a certain authority over me. We're just, we're just talking. Magnolia, there's no way out of the south but driving. Miles of sun, good faith, and an ending. We all know what last struck the other. The car window still busted to count who's missing. Miles of bottles, a good temper as intimacy. 
when the Kentucky man said he might shoot me for turning around in his driveway, he didn't raise his voice as by routine. The last person to lose their way must have unmasked him. Asked what have you to say of yourself, of your family tree, miles of poplar trees. There is a highway no one uses, towns made for strangers to be lost. You do scarce to find a mechanic shop with all its parts or any road without a dead stop. If you're done enough, you'd walk and somewhere distant, the Dixon, the heat would bring you to your knees. Miles of salt, good eating to die quick and well. The last on your fingers, what you stay for. In there, you've got... Like there's this collective of miles of statements, miles of blank, miles of blank. And it, it feels like they both represent like a distance that's being created, obviously, out the rear view, let's say. But also kind of a collecting mm-hmm. or like a hoarding of something. And yeah. I'm curious what, you know, what's what's behind what is there, you know, and if that's the intention behind those those statements, too. Yeah, no, I think it's it's yeah simultaneously affording and a and a distancing, which I think also gets at um, probably a, just a, a representation of, of what I was talking about before with the uh, simultaneously like carrying Louisville or the South with you, but also wanting to to leave for whatever reason. Um, but I think it's the um, you know the weight of whatever you're carrying with you that just continues its imprint um, on you. So I think that part of the, you know, feeling like you're not really able to be, you know, only if you have a car, only it's the only way that you're able to, to get out. Sometimes it feels like, yeah, I mean, growing up, waiting for waiting for the tarp, it could be it could be an hour or so many things could go wrong, you know, in terms of our bus bus system. Yeah. Um, you know, and then if you're if you're not able to to take a flight, it feels like this is this is the only way. So this this kind of a cycling of of mobility and movement um, and circulation. Where did you take, you know, the bus from and to? Um, I would take it uh, sometimes uh, when I was in high school. So I went to Manuel, even though you didn't ask. <laughs> um, but I went to Manuel and, and I, <laughs> I would have, uh, you know, basketball practice or some things that I stayed after school for. Nice. Um, and my mom was working. So if I, you know, took a chart, I would take the 18 to the 19. But it could, it could take quite some time. Um, so that's, that's typically what I would do. And then in the summers, if, you know, if me and my siblings wanted to go somewhere, it would be a whole adventure. Uh, trying to to get somewhere on time, you know, right in the chart. Yeah, and where were y'all living? Sorry if you just said that. No, no, no. Um, so on uh, by the Dirty Kroger on uh, <laughs> Lower Brownsboro. Yeah. Um, you know, everybody should know the Dirty Kroger. I like that. People hate that Kroger. I, do too. I like that Kroger. I do too. Everything's compact. It's everything you need. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, even sometimes, we, you know, we walk long distances along grounds for, for where we were going. Tell me more about the presence of, of magnolias. I mean, you're, you're, it looks like yeah. in one poem, you're the, the, the mom character is telling the speaker that she planted the only magnolia. And then we come to a poem titled Magnolia. You know, is there, is there something significant with that tree? 
Yeah, I mean, it's just to me, it's it's the you know the marking of of a southern tree um, yeah. is a magnolia, um, and just the magnolia's reoccurrence in within like southern southern lore and southern references. But I think personally. Um, yeah, my mom, my mom planted a magnolia tree in our front yard, um, when my, my sister was born. So it's kind of like her tree. And so that's where that's getting it. Of course, it's hyperbole. There are many more magnolias in Louisville than that one. Magnolias really are the best. Well, we started out that second set 
with the poet Mackenzie Berry reading the poem, I Refuse to Believe These Are the Best Years of My Life. We are focusing on the work of Mackenzie Berry today, especially the book Slack Tongue City, out from Sundress Publications in 2022. Mackenzie's poem was followed by Amy Mann with Save Me from the Magnolia soundtrack. And then we heard Mackenzie read the poem Ritual of Breathing, and we discussed that poem. That was followed by local band out there doing great things, producing a kind generation, P-A-K-G, with their new single, T-Y-T, Take Your Time, followed by Mackenzie's poem, Magnolia, and then Lou Reed's old pal, J.J. Kale, with Magnolia. Next up after me is Anonymous Anomalous Radio, A9ANOM, Glossy Goblin, Surreal Storytelling. Stay tuned for that. Don't leave this dial. You can also tune in on Tuesday evenings for the Freedom Hour with Nilu, Shadi, and Shirin. The Freedom Hour is a talk show about the Iranian revolution and culture, including Iranian music. Only right here. The Freedom Hour on 97.1 WXOX and 100.9 WXND. Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Listen to the Freedom Hour. I want to give a special thanks to Mackenzie Berry for discussing her work with me. You can learn more about Mackenzie at her website, MackenzieBerry.com. That's M-A-C-K-E-N-Z-I-E-B-E-R-R-Y.com. Thank you for being out there and representing us, Mackenzie. Mackenzie's a lecturer at Cornell in Ithaca, New York, but I'd also like to congratulate her on getting a new position at Tufts University in Boston as a lecturer. Congratulations. I have two pieces left for the day. Mackenzie and I will discuss perceptions of Kentucky inside and outside the United States, and we'll end the day with a song by Joy Oladokun. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you soon. Enmeshing yourself in the local population and community in the sense of like making local friends um, right. It's quite challenging, but I guess I've always imagined in my mind in London that it might be easier because they're maybe less of a, of a language barrier. But I also wonder for you, right. you know, both of us being Kentucky folks, if, if folks maybe, I don't know, underestimated you. Yeah, um, that's a great question. I really everywhere I've traveled outside uh, the U.S. because I also, when I was in college, I studied abroad in South Africa for a semester and studied abroad a couple other places. But typically whenever I say, you know, I'm from, you know, I say I'm from the U.S., they say we're in the U.S. Um, and I say Kentucky, you know, most people only know like New York City or L.A. So they're looking, where do I fall in that? Yeah, right. <laughs> and, you know, we fall in neither. But when I say Kentucky, they're like, oh, Kentucky Fried Chicken. Um, because that's <laughs> the, most, the most international um, yeah. claim that we have. Or, though, I think our, our saving grace as millions, though, is that I'll say I'm, I'm from where Muhammad Ali is from. I'm from the city where he's from. They're like, oh, okay, oh. Muhammad Ali. Yeah. So, yeah, that, um, yeah, it seems that the two the two things that reach internationally for Kentucky uh, is KFC and Muhammad Ali. Um, so right. um, that'll typically be my uh, be my entry point in terms of saying where I'm from. Um, and wild enough, I remember being in Italy actually, and on the beach somewhere, and some some man asked me where I'm from, and I said I just said the U.S. And he turned to his son. And he said, oh, she's from the U.S. That's where Muhammad Ali is from. And he, like, put up his hands. And I, I hadn't oh, wow. even said, you know, Louisville or anything. It was just the, just the association of the United States. 
uh, which was which was really cool. Yeah, or yeah, I remember saying like, "Oh, I'm from Kentucky," and people were like, "What Turkey? What you say?" And yeah, so it, it would kind of get get lost. But yeah, people who who knew like, okay, Kentucky's in the South, um, would ask about. Um, yeah, we just ask about so what's you know like what's it like like being from you know what's it like being from the south just knowing uh, you know hearing the, the perception of what that is within it. Uh, but I remember yeah, I told someone that I was from Kentucky and he was like, oh, in Texas, and I was like, no, 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 Kentucky, and he was like, Kentucky's in Texas, right? And I was like, no. I think more so, I get more so people's perceptions of Kentucky within the U.S. rather than when I go abroad because I think especially when I. The first like uh, national program that I did in when I was in high school, it was at uh, Kenyon College uh, in yeah. Ohio, and it was you know people from from all over the country were in in that program. And so when they asked, you know, I remember uh, this group of, of three girls from New York City asked me where I was from, and I said, uh, I said oh, I'm from Kentucky, and legitimately. They looked at my at my feet as if to see, um, oh you know, looked at my feet and then said, "But you're wearing shoes." Just so so matter of factly, like not even trying to jab at me or anything, and wow. as if like you can't be from Kentucky because you're wearing shoes. And I, you know, I had to <laughs> sit there and convince them that you know I was from a city even. Uh, which of course, even if I wasn't, it's like, no, <laughs> but you know, I was showing them pictures of Louisville and they were just like, this is not in Kentucky. There's no way I don't like, I don't believe you. There's, there's no cities in Kentucky. Um, yeah. and so I think I got it more so within the U S rather than outside of it. And when I went to college as well, I felt like I had to decide, am I gonna shy away from it or am I gonna carry it on my shoulder at the forefront? And yeah, I chose to, especially when I was in college, I would say where I was from before I even said my name uh, because I just felt like I had a chip on my shoulder and I had something to prove. <laughs> Something to believe 
If you got a problem 